the Civil War began, nobody foresaw, especially that fought for the North, uh, or that lived in the North, thought that the Civil War was going to go on as long as it did. In fact, uh, the, the North and people who lived in the North uh, severely underestimated the Confederate Army, the Confederate soldiers. In fact, when the Civil War broke out, uh, people thought it was just going to be a few brief skirmishes and, and it would be over. Nobody foresaw that uh, it would turn into a war, a civil war that would just tear our nation apart. In fact, when the very, at the very first uh, civil war battle, uh, people came, people that lived in the North came uh, to watch the war and to just uh, kind of treat it as entertainment. And they came and just uh, sat on a hillside and just kind of took in a war as if they were watching their favorite sports team, you know, uh, fight. And, you know, they're just kind of watching as if it's a football game and uh, actually, there's a famous picture from history at the Battle of Bull Run uh, where people came and just had a picnic on a hillside to watch the very first uh, battle uh, of Bull Run, the very first fight that happened in the Civil War. This is a famous picture from history uh, that we are going to, there we go. Um, this is a famous picture from history where people came and just, you know, picked out, or picked out, um, that's the the right way to say have a picnic, picked out. Um, they came and uh, they had a picnic right there on the hillside. And uh, you imagine, you thought your husband was bad at bait, uh, date suggestions. I mean, this is the worst date idea I've ever heard of. Uh, we'll just go watch a war today, honey, you know? Uh, imagine one of those ended in divorce. Uh, what's the problem? He took me to watch a civil war. That's the problem. Um, but they came, they just had a picnic and they just watched uh, the civil war. And they never foresaw that it was gonna turn into into what it did. And um, I say that today because one of the things that the writers of the scriptures uh, teach us, and one of the things when we begin to open up the Bible, one of the things that we realize is that the Bible uh, gives us this picture, the, the writers of the scriptures give us this picture and over and over again, that we live in the middle of a world that is at war. That if we could see with spiritual eyes, that uh, if we could just have the curtain peel back on what's going on uh, in terms of, uh, in cosmic terms, in terms of angels and demons and God and uh, a Satan, a devil, that if we could see with spiritual eyes, we would begin to realize that we live, this, this earth uh, is essentially a world that is at war, that there is a spiritual war going on everywhere that we look and that uh, you can't just reduce evil, the source of evil. Uh, it's not just because of psychological or sociological factors. The right of the scriptures invite us to see over and over again uh, that evil has a source, that evil comes from a very specific place, and that there is an enemy that has waged war against humanity. And the writers of the scriptures over and over again are urging us to see that something we cannot see is affecting everything in this world that we can and to open our eyes. And we're gonna talk about this for the next few weeks because what the scripture writers ultimately urge us to do uh, is, is to not just treat the Christian life uh, as a series of principles for better living. It certainly has that, it certainly is that. Uh, but if we just treat the Christian life as a series of principles for raising kids and managing finances, uh, we'll end up living in this world as if we're throwing a picnic in the middle of a battlefield. And the writers of the Bible are urging us, open your eyes, begin to realize that we live in a world all around uh, that is at war. And I certainly understand that for, for many of us, if you're just kind of uh, coming back to church or checking church out, you already kind of thought Christians were weird, and uh, we're talking about you know, the devil and Satan this week, and you're just thinking, you know, I knew Christians were strange, but I didn't know they were this strange. And this just sounds like something uh, straight out of Middle Earth, or we're going to read passages about Gandalf in a few moments. I mean, this just sounds so bizarre. I certainly understand that. And if you're new and you're just kind of checking out church or um, asking questions, um, welcome. <laughs> uh, we're glad that you're here. 
Uh, but to take the writers of the scripture seriously. Uh, this is what the Bible uh, defines as reality, ultimate reality. And this week and the next few weeks, we're not so concerned with what you believe we, we are, just hang with me on this, and I'm not so concerned with what I believe. Here's our, our main concern for the next few weeks. What did the writers of the Bible believe about the world that they lived in? Uh, what did the writers of the scriptures believe about evil that happens and transpires on this place called planet Earth? And more importantly, what did Jesus believe about evil? What did Jesus see about his work in this world and what he had come to do? Uh, because what, what, what did Jesus believe was the source of evil? Uh, because my pastor growing up used to always say this, and I think he was right, uh, that if Jesus had the ability to predict his own death and resurrection and somehow pull it off, uh, I'm going with him. If he had the ability, until somebody else comes along and is able to pull that off, I'm going with the guy that walked out of a tomb in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And so the ultimate concern for us is what did Jesus believe about evil and what is happening in the middle of this world that we live in? That's what we're gonna explore together for the next few weeks. If you have a Bible, uh, let's open it together to the beginning. Genesis chapter one is where we will start. Genesis chapter one, where we're gonna begin in verse 27. It's always important to begin in the beginning of the story. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two gives us a backdrop to the world before the world. Uh, and it's an important backdrop. It's the backdrop for everything else that's going to transpire in the scriptures. And what Genesis one, what Genesis two uh, invite us to see is that we were blessed before we were broken. Uh, that we were given responsibility to have dominion over this earth. And uh, if we begin in Genesis 3, if we, we don't read Genesis 1 and chapter 2, if we begin in the, the, the middle of the story, then the Christian life will just be about forgiven of sins and we won't really know what to do in this world. Uh, but the scriptures in Genesis 1 are inviting us to see that we're called to be image bearers in our offices, in our jobs, in our families, everywhere that we go, we are called. Jesus is restoring us back to be the image bearers. And that we have a responsibility in this world. And so the story begins in Genesis chapter one. This is what God wants you to know about the world before the world. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, have babies. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so God gives uh, man and woman dominion over this place. The very next chapter, what do you see Adam doing? He's naming the animals. And uh, in the Hebrew world, to name something is to have dominion over it. And so uh, they have this, uh, this sense of control, this responsibility, this sacred job of taking care of the planet that we live on, to live in harmony. This is essentially giving us a scene of what it looks like when God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven. Humanity is living in harmony with each other. Humanity is living in harmony with God. Things are exactly as God intends for them to be. For those of us that have been hanging around church for a while, uh, we know what happens next in the story. Uh, it takes just a couple pages in, everything falls apart. And our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, uh, essentially invite evil in. And evil uh, comes into the story very early. Genesis chapter three, let's turn over a couple of pages in the story. Genesis chapter three, we'll start in verse one. Now the serpent, and we find out later the serpent uh, is the devil, it's Satan. 
And Satan, it's not so much of a name. It's not like we could have named him Bob or Bill or Jim, but we went with Satan because it just had a nice kind of ring to it. Um, it's more of a title. It's a job description. His LinkedIn profile would read, uh, he's a Satan. He, uh, it means adversary. It means the opposer. He's going to uh, frustrate the purposes of God, the, fr- the purposes of man in this world. Uh, he is going to accuse. It means uh, the accuser. He's going to accuse God of not being good as he does in this very next part of the story. It says, the serpent, the devil, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, which actually this is not what God said. If you go back a chapter, you realize this is not, he's twisting the words of God. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And so he deceives Adam and Eve. They eat from the tree. uh, And the story is that if it had been you or I, the story would have gone the exact same way. We could be down on Adam and Eve, but they are essentially symbolic of humanity. uh, That they, we, we would have made the exact same choice. Because every single day, if you're anything like me, uh, I vote not to follow God, but to be God myself. I want to be the authority of my life. And so they, uh, they are essentially us in the story. And everything falls apart. Death, cancer, everything about this world that we can't stand ushers in in this moment. And God levies a curse against humanity. He puts a curse on man. He puts a curse on woman. But he also puts a curse on the serpent, on the devil. And in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, here's the curse that he places on the the devil. He says this in verse 15, and I will put enmity, he's talking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He says, I will put enmity, talking to the devil, uh, and enmity here, it's animosity. It's hostility. There's going to be a struggle between you, the devil, and her offspring, which is obviously all of us, there's now going to be an adversary. We will now have an opposer uh, at work against us in this world. Something will be there to frustrate uh, harmony between people. Uh, something will be there to uh, distort human choice. Something will be there to make this world go off the rails. And this idea of animosity begins to enter in between the devil and God's children in God's people. We find out later in the story uh, that the devil, the serpent, is a fallen angel. Uh, he's been deceived by his own pride. He's not an equal with God. Uh, he is a created being, but he's waged war against God. He was deceived by his own pride. And his very first act of war against God is to deceive our original mom and dad, to deceive Adam and Eve into giving up all that God has for them. And they go for it, and everything begins to fall apart. And now Satan enters into this world. And the simplest way to explain it uh, is simply this. God, uh, the, pro- the, the primary image that's given to us all throughout the Old and all throughout the New Testament of who God is, is that God is king. The psalmists talk over and over again about entering into his courts. The writers of the scriptures, the prophets talk about uh, God being seated above the earth and the circle of the earth. The scriptures invite us to see God as king, as the dominant image over and over again. Here what happens in the Garden of Eden is Satan rushes in. And on this earth, on the, the, this territory called planet earth, he is going to set up a counter kingdom to the kingdom of God. 
And he's going to frustrate the purposes of God. Uh, that, that feeling, you maybe never explained it this way, but you've had this feeling before that there's a good angel on one shoulder and there's a bad angel on another. There will now be as much capacity for evil as there is for good. We will now live in a world uh, with Mother Teresa. We will live in a world with Adolf Hitler. We will live in a world where evil and good will now be here. Essentially what happens in this moment is that God's will on earth will no longer happen as it is in heaven. The purposes of God will be frustrated. This world will become a very hostile and dangerous place to live. We have an opposer and an adversary. And one of the questions that we ask, and maybe for you this is a huge obstacle uh, to the Christian faith or to Christianity, or maybe even as a Christian you struggle with this, I know I certainly do, is the question of why do bad things happen to good people? It's a very fair question. It's a legitimate question. If you haven't asked it at some point, um, you certainly will. When you turn on the news or even in your own life, you just start to look around. She's a good person. He's a good person. They're a good. Why in the world would a good and loving God allow that to happen if he's such a good God? It's a legitimate question. But when we begin to read the scriptures and we realize that we have an opposer, we have an adversary, that there is a force of evil at work against us every single day in our life, it certainly is not surprising. In fact, it becomes more surprising that so many good things happen in this world because the scriptures teach us there is a force at work. There is something that you cannot see that is working against the purposes of God. And the writers of the scriptures, they were horrified, they were shocked, they were terrified at horrible things that happen in this world, but they certainly were not surprised. They understood that we live in a world that is at war. They saw this place called planet Earth essentially as a piece of land where a cosmic battle is taking place and that evil is at work and has set up dominion and a kingdom here in this world. And they were horrified, but they certainly were not surprised. And they urge us over and over again as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, Do not throw a picnic in a battlefield. Open your eyes. Begin to realize that evil has a source. And we certainly live in a world where, as God says at the beginning, uh, that he blesses creation, he blesses humanity. He's given us dominion. He calls us creation good. We live in a world where beautiful, wonderful things happen all the time. But now we live in a world where creation has essentially gone off the rails. Creation has gone berserk. The best way I can think to explain it uh, is several years ago, 21 years ago or so, my dad uh, took me to go do disaster relief uh, in the floodplains of Missouri after the floods of 93. And it was the next summer. And uh, as a kid, my dad had a construction background. We walked into these houses. And it was houses that had been vacated for a year, beautiful homes, some of these houses, uh, very expensive, lavish homes. And you'd walk into these houses where no one uh, had even stepped foot. There would be dead animals laying around. You'd be sludging through carpet that had just been soaked and drenched with, uh, drenched with mud. And you'd look up and you'd see uh, a beautiful chandelier that was just flawless. You'd see wallpaper that was expensive. You'd see tables that were, uh, some, some of which were, were not even damaged at all. So you'd see horrible things and you'd see beautiful things. Uh, this is the picture of what this world is like. A force has rushed in that has done irrepar- irreparable damage. 
Something has happened in this world. We see this happen every single day in our life, uh, of our lives. In courthouses, this has played out. We're in one room in a courthouse. Uh, a young woman and a young man are pledging their lives to each other before God and before a judge to say, we want to get married. And, and parents and grandparents are weeping and celebrating just down the hall in that same courthouse. Another couple is saying, after 20 years, we can't do it anymore. Dividing up assets, custody battles, tears are being shed for much different reasons. In hospitals, this is being played out. We're in one room. A family's getting the best news they've ever heard. It's a boy and grandma and grandpa. People are making phone calls. Uh, teddy bears are being brought as presents. People are overjoyed at this moment. Just down the hall, another family's getting the worst news they've ever heard. There's nothing we can do. Doesn't look well. This is now the creation, as much capacity for evil as there is for good. The creation has gone off the rails. It has gone berserk. This week, many of us will get on airplanes and we will go uh, celebrate uh, with family a week off from school. We'll go to Disneyland. We'll go do whatever it is that, that you do. Make memories, take pictures, have a beautiful experience. At the same time, uh, you turn on the news, you realize that teenage girls will get on planes and go join ISIS. We live in a world uh, with as much capacity for evil as there is for good. And there is no square inch of real estate that you can go to in this world to escape it. There is no economic bracket that you can climb to high enough to get out of it. It is the world that we live in. So if you're God, what in the world do you do? Do you just throw a match on creation and say it's time to start over? Are we just gonna circumvent the whole problem? Uh, what the scriptures tell us in the New Testament that is ultimately just so unbelievable that we will celebrate uh, in a month together at Easter is that Jesus actually enters into it. And the picture here is in the same way uh, the soldiers, the allied forces showed up on the beaches of Normandy uh, in 1944 at D-Day. Jesus comes into hostile territory. He enters into a world where the effects of, of the devil and the evil one are everywhere that he looks. And he comes for the purpose of waging war against the devil. He comes, 1 John 3 tells us, he comes, he appears to defeat the works of the devil in this world. And he's waging war and Jesus essentially comes. We celebrate Christmas morning as the arrival of Jesus, which it certainly is. But Christmas morning is a declaration of war. Jesus has come to put an end to this war and the effects of the devil once and for all. And we begin to see this happening and transpiring in the scriptures. If you have a Bible, let's open it together to Luke chapter four. This is at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The temptation scene that we saw in the Garden of Eden uh, gets repeated. It gets acted out again where the devil comes to Jesus this time instead of Adam and Eve. And he says this to Jesus, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 5. It says, the devil led him up, talking about Jesus, to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, this is Satan speaking, not Jesus. He said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And the scene, the scenario that plays out here, uh, Jesus resists the devil. He actually quotes scripture at him. 
Uh, but notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't give in to the temptation, but he doesn't deny that Satan has the kingdoms of this world under his authority. He concedes this point. You have the kingdoms of this world. Three times in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world, the prince of this age. Uh, the word he uses in Greek is the word archon. It essentially means CEO. Uh, Jesus is talking over, over about this reality that Satan, the work of Satan, uh, the kingdom of Satan has been set up in this world, and he is the CEO. He is the archon of this planet. He's very well aware of the source of evil, and he's very well aware of what one of his missions in this world is to do, to drive out the devil and the work of the evil one in this world. And so over and over again, what do you see Jesus doing in his ministry? He's casting out demons and he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons and he's healing the sick. This is what his LinkedIn profile says that he does. He casts out demons and he heals the sick. This is the work of Jesus. For Jesus, these two activities are not mutually exclusive. Both of them are ways of waging war against any activity that Satan has done in this world. Anything that is outside of the purposes and the intentions of God, Jesus is bringing it back under the authority and the kingship of God. Anywhere where Satan's kingdom has set up and done damage or perverted or taken creation off course, whether sickness, illness, demon possession, whatever it is, he's bringing it. Jesus is essentially obsessed with this idea of bringing heaven to earth, of bringing God's will and demonstrating it on earth as it is in heaven. He's bringing the kingdom of God in this world. He's establishing what it looks like when God shows up over and over and over again. This is the work that Jesus comes to do. At one point, Jesus is having this discussion with the Pharisees. Uh, discussion's a nice word. He's actually having an argument with the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus has been driving out demons in the region. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't think that he works for God. They think he's working. Uh, they don't know where, who he's working for, but they, they know he has help. They know he has power coming from somewhere. Uh, so the Pharisees come up with this theory that he's driving out demons uh, because the devil has given them the authority to do it. And Jesus looks at him and says, that doesn't work for all kinds of reasons. That logic breaks down. And they have this discussion or argument. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. It says this. Jesus knew their thoughts, which is apparently a very helpful thing to have in an argument. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And I imagine the Pharisees kind of scratch their head when Jesus said this, but I love that he says it. If Satan drives out Satan, he's going, okay, guys, let's just follow your theory here for a second. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Which I imagine the Pharisees thought, well, that's a very interesting point. We hadn't considered that. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, another name is given for the devil in the scriptures, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, in other words, if I'm doing it because I'm telling you I'm sent here from God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29, and this is a very interesting thing Jesus says. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. 
then he can plunder his house. What in the world is Jesus uh, saying that he's doing? Is Jesus encouraging us to go rob people? (laughs) This is a very interesting thing that Jesus says. For Jesus, uh, the devil in this scenario is the strong man. The strong man is the devil. This is the picture that he's giving. This house uh, that he's talking about, the strong man guarding, uh, is this creation. It's the world that God made. And Jesus is essentially saying here, my work, what I have come to do is to bind up the strong man, to tie up the devil. Uh, In this culture, if you had a lot of money, you wouldn't put it into banks, you wouldn't put it into uh, 401k, none of that existed. What you would do is you would hire a strong man, you would hire a bodyguard essentially to stand guard outside your house to protect it. And Jesus is saying the devil is the strong man of this world. He's the CEO of this place. And I have come to bind him up. My work in this world is to tie him up and to begin to take back this creation that got seized in the Garden of Eden. My goal is to begin to go throughout this world and begin to put the house back together, to begin to make it look as if God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven, to begin to set up the kingdom of God in this place that is hostile territory that Satan has seized. I'm taking the plunder. I'm binding up the devil. This is what he sees his work in this world to do. This is why it's very important that we don't make the mistake of just saying Jesus is a good moral teacher. Over and over again, this time of year, you'll see specials on TV, you'll see news articles asking the question, who was the historical Jesus? Who was the historical Jesus? And people around the time of Easter get so fascinated with this question. And one of the answers that people come to all the time is that Jesus was a good moral teacher amongst a lot of other good moral teachers. The problem with that is good moral teachers don't talk like this. Messiahs talk like this. Good moral teachers don't talk about waging cosmic battles. Aristotle never talks about going to war against Zeus. Good moral teachers seek to understand reality, help us navigate reality. Jesus comes to transform reality. And he says, my work in this world is to bind up the devil, to set the captives free, to begin to bring the kingdom of God, to make this creation in this world look the way that God intended for it to be. That is what I have come to do in this world. So the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it is essentially the moment where Jesus says the war for all intents and purposes is over. The the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are ultimately the moment where Jesus binds up the strong man once and for all and reclaims his creation, you and me and the people of God. And the question, of course, you have and I have when you hear that is, well, why is there still cancer? Why is there still foreclosure? Why do every single day I get up, do I feel uh, like this addiction from high school or college is pulling me back and pulling me back? Why is it still so hard to follow God? If, If Jesus has defeated the devil at the cross and the resurrection, why do we live in the kind of world that we live in? And it's a very good question. The simplest way I can think to explain it is, is simply this, that the, the World War II, for all intents and purposes, it ended at D-Day. June 6, 1994, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and defeated the Germans and the World war, 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 it continued on. But for all intents and purposes, D-Day was the end of World War II. But there were still a lot of bombs going off. 
The world was still a hostile place. The world was essentially still a world zone at that time. And the war did not officially end until V-Day, which was almost a year later. And what the scriptures invite us to see when we open up the pages of the Bible is this, that we live, you and I, we live in this unique period of time between the D-Day of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the V-Day, the moment that Jesus is going to return to this world and ultimately, once and for all, bind the strong man, rid the devil of any influence and effect that he has in this world. And the scriptures in Revelation tell us he will wipe every tear from our eye. There will be that moment. You weren't supposed to die. That was not a part of God's original design. And there will be this moment where once and for all, and we live in this this period of time between the D-day of the cross and the resurrection and the V-day, the moment that Jesus returns to this world once and for all. But, but here's the good news. When you become a Christian, when you become a disciple of Jesus, you become like this little piece of reclaimed territory where God sticks a flag in you and says, you are my new creation amidst an old creation. Death cannot harm you. You are the kingdom of God in this world. You are the representation of the people. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Although things around you, it's a war zone. You are this little piece of territory where the kingdom of God is at work. And I want you to begin to live as this little piece of territory. And and, in fact, the, the picture the scriptures give us, we don't have time to get into all this, but the picture the scriptures give us is that now we're the aggressors. That we don't just lock ourselves in church and hope the enemy out there doesn't get us, but we're now the aggressors, expanding the kingdom of God and its work here in this world. That's the work that the church has been called to do. But he says, you are the territory. You are the, God, you're the plunder that God has reclaimed for himself. And the writers of the scriptures, Paul and the New Testament, tell us over and over again, we're gonna spend more time exploring this in the coming weeks, what it means to live in hostile territory. A couple things that Paul says in the New Testament, Ephesians, the back half of Ephesians, is devoted to to live in this kind of a world, in a hostile war zone. But here's what the, the writer of Ephesians, Paul, tells us in Ephesians chapter four. He says this, in your anger, I don't want you to sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then he adds this, and do not give the devil a foothold. Essentially, here's the idea. Paul's saying, you're like this little piece of reclaimed territory that God says, you're the new creation. You're you're what heaven on earth looks like. You're this little place, even when you don't feel like it. God has said, you belong to me. And I don't want you to give the devil a foothold. He's constantly going to try to get back what he lost at the cross. He's gonna constantly try. That's the temptation you feel, that there is an enemy at work who's pulling you, constantly trying to regain foothold into the territory that he lost at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, don't give him a foothold. You belong to God. You don't belong to the rulers of this world. You belong to God. And so one of the things that Paul says is in your anger, do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. And the idea here is simply this, that demons are like rats and they get attracted to garbage. And so the question for you and I is in our lives, where is the garbage? Where are the, do you live in isolation? You were not designed to live and fight in this battle by yourself. Nobody can do the Christian life alone. You are not a lone ranger. 
You're called to live in community. Where is the garbage? Is there a life of fantasy that nobody sees? Is there an emotional affair at work? Is there a constant addiction that just keeps coming? Where are the things where you need to uh, begin to fortify the troops and begin to rally and have people pray? Where are those areas? Because demons are like rats. They're attracted to garbage. And where it is in your life, it has the potential. In this example, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. The problem's not anger. is that anger is like a gateway drug and it can open you up to attack and to the schemes of the evil one. He goes on and he says this, in the very next passage, or in, the, in Ephesians chapter six, and I've noticed before, when Christians talk about this, uh, talk about spiritual warfare, our inner Hulk Hogan can start to rage up. And one of the things that we can begin to do, and Paul warns against this, is begin to look around culture and find people that sin differently than we do, and begin to say, we're gonna start naming and, claim, and saying who Satan on earth is and say, well, they're the devil on earth and they're the devil on earth and we're gonna fight them and we're gonna fight them. And Paul writes the church in Ephesus to say, let's warn against that. We are not, remember, Jesus did not fight with the sword. And so he says this in Ephesians chapter six. Here's how I want you to fight. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, if it has skin on, if it has a heartbeat, that's not your enemy. He says, you do have an enemy and you need to make sure that your tanks and your ammo is pointed in the right direction. He says, here's your enemy. The rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, this is the devil, this is the, the Satan character, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He goes, your enemy doesn't have skin on. And be very careful before you pick up a sword. Be very careful who you name your enemy in this world. And this is a verse every Christian I know believes, but almost nobody practices. <laughs> We're great at doing war with each other and culture and everybody out there because we name them the problem and them the problem. And, and, and Paul's going, that, that's not your enemy. And if you're not careful, you'll end up doing battle with somebody that you're supposed to be fighting for. Put it in simpler terms. Lady Gaga is not your enemy. Madonna is not your enemy. What he's saying here is your enemy doesn't have skin on and you will end up lobbing bombs and fighting with people that you're supposed to be fighting for. It's easier to criticize somebody than to pray for them, isn't it? What if we began to live this way? What if we began to pray this way? What if our worldview uh, began to be, just God, open our eyes, let us begin to see how much more, intelligent would we, how much more intelligently would we pray and begin to live if we began to realize that this world is a hostile territory. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have defeated the powers and the forces of evil that are at work in this world. And you have claimed us as new creation. God, your, script, your, your uh, scriptures tell us uh, that we're more than conquerors. Your scriptures tell us that we are the aggressors now, expanding your kingdom in this world. Uh, God, I, I just pray uh, over your church that we would be the people of God. We would know that um, we are the claimed territory. We're the new creation in the middle of a fallen one. Uh, speak life into us, Holy Spirit. Uh, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray, amen.